It's helpful to remember that the world's definition of happiness and means of obtaining happiness are different from God's definition and means. A man whose company has helped over 75% of Fortune 500 companies, uh, who's an award-winning co-author of a best-selling book that sold over 2 million copies and whose best-selling books have been translated into 25 languages and are available in more than 150 countries, so a successful man, wrote a short article titled, 11 Habits of Truly Happy People. And I think some of his points will resonate with you, but I think that you'll notice that several significant things are missing. Here are his 11 habits. One, create your own happiness. Don't sit back and wait for it. Two, surround yourself with the right people. Three, get enough sleep. Four, live in the moment. Five, learn to love yourself. Six, appreciate what you have. Seven, exercise. Eight, forgive but don't forget. Nine, get in touch with your feelings. Ten, concentrate on what you can control. Eleven, have a growth mindset. And then he ends the article with this. These strategies won't just improve your happiness, they'll also make you a better person. Pick those that resonate with you and have fun with them. Now, I think that he gives uh, several helpful truths, but he doesn't mention habits like this. Admit that you're spiritually bankrupt or lament your moral depravity or crave the righteousness that you know you don't have or rejoice and be glad when you're persecuted and suffer much pain. The world doesn't link those habits to happiness, but Jesus did. Jesus is preeminently happy, and he invites people to come to him to learn about true happiness, but he defines happiness differently than the world, and he describes possessing happiness in terms that make the world uncomfortable. In the following months, we're going to look at the Sermon on the Mount, starting with the Beatitudes, in order to better understand happiness as Jesus taught it. And it should resonate because we all want to be maximally happy. Now, before we unpack the Beatitudes, I'd like to give some introductory comments for all of the Sermon on the Mount. Hopefully, this helps you understand the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus intended it. Some cautions and context for understanding the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is probably the most famous sermon ever uh, and is the first of five discourses of Jesus in Matthew. It stretches from chapter 5 to chapter 7, so we'll be studying the sermon for a while. The Sermon on the Mount has drawn much attention and can be somewhat controversial. What does it mean? Is it law or is it gospel? How is it applied today? Is it relevant for Christians today or for a future millennial kingdom only? Lots of different questions and lots of different approaches. Some people moralize the Sermon on the Mount. They detach it from God's law and gospel and reduce the sermon to a rally cry to live out the good morals for the well-being of society, kind of Uh, kind of a social justice approach. The motto becomes, just do it. Moralizing is dangerous because it attaches Jesus' points from God's law and gospel of sovereign grace, and it ignores the role of the Holy Spirit. Other people make the sermon legalistic. 
They think, if I live this way, then I'll be a good person. A legalistic rendering of the sermon is dangerous because it fails to account for human sinfulness and moral inability. Living the Sermon on the Mount will not justify anyone. Justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, who embodies the ethics of the sermon alone. A legalistic rendering is antithetical to the gospel and quite burdensome as well. Still others hear the Sermon on the Mount and consider it impossible to do at all, even for spirit-filled Christians. So they consider it irrelevant for Christians today. This is antinomianism. This view fails to recognize that grace motivates unto holiness, that the Holy Spirit works these ethics in the hearts and lives of God's people. Still others apply the sermon to a future messianic kingdom alone, thus diminishing the sermon's direct application for Christians today. One study Bible which has greatly influenced American Christianity actually says this, quote, the Sermon on the Mount in its primary application gives neither the privilege nor the duty of the church, end of quote. Uh, another source commented, quote, the law is not the Christian's rule of life. For we are told again and again that we have died to the law. It would then be difficult to assert that the Sermon on the Mount, which is the quintessence of the law, is the Christian rule of faith. End of quote. Now, if the Sermon on the Mount is the quintessence of the law, and the law is not the rule of Christian life, what is? And if at that moment we say, well, Jesus is, we must then ask, how did Jesus live? And Jesus came and obeyed God's law perfectly. To live like Jesus is to obey God's moral law as Jesus did. So this view of the sermon fails in various aspects. It misunderstands God's law and its continued application for God's people today. It misunderstands what it means to die to the law. It denigrates God's law and strongly implies antinomianism. It misunderstands the three uses of God's law, particularly the third use, which says that the law or the Sermon on the Mount shows Christians how to walk in spirit-filled obedience to their father's house rules out of gratitude and joy in their Father's grace. And folks, there are even more ways to spin this. How should we understand the Sermon on the Mount? Well, before we get there, let's retrace Matthew's logic a bit from the beginning of the book. In chapters 1 and 2, Matthew establishes the identity of Jesus Christ, God's promised Davidic king and announces his arrival. In chapter 3, Matthew confirms the messianic identity and work of Jesus by John the Baptist's ministry and recounts the baptism of Jesus where Jesus was anointed by the Holy Spirit and ordained for his ministry and work as the Christ. In chapter 4, Jesus proves to be the sinless and perfect covenant keeper and righteous king by obeying the covenant amidst intense satanic temptation. Then Jesus begins to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus brings his spiritual kingdom to the hearts and lives of God's elect. Jesus chooses his disciples who repent and believe and begin to live out the ethics of the king by the king's grace. We saw last week King Jesus teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. The gospel of the kingdom is the good news of salvation. 
worked in the hearts and lives of God's chosen people, a reign and rule which begin in this life and are consummated at the king's return. Now, after all that and more in, in the first little bit of Matthew, Matthew recount, uh, recounts for us then the Sermon on the Mount. So let me ask, how should we understand the Sermon on the Mount? I'll first give you uh, a few quotes to get you thinking, okay? And then I'm going to pull it all together, hopefully, and, and hopefully it, it begins to start making sense. The first quote is from one study Bible. It says this, we must recognize that the sermon is directed to the disciples and through them to the whole church today. The sermon addresses both inward motives and outward conduct, calling the adopted sons of God to reflect the character of their heavenly father. These legitimate demands set the bar so high that no one except Jesus, the king himself, fulfills them flawlessly. We are therefore driven to the grace and mercy of God, both forgiveness in our failure and for the Spirit's strength when our faith and faithfulness are tried. Another study Bible says, speaking to his disciples, Jesus expounds the reality of discipleship lived in the presence and power of the kingdom of God, but within the everyday world. These teachings, rightly understood, form a challenging but practical ethic that Jesus expects his followers to live by in this present age. Another study Bible quote, Jesus here affirms his kingdom manifesto. Like the already but not yet reign of God, this is the ideal ethic for which believers must strive even while recognizing they will fall far short of living up to it, end of quote. The, the already not yet means the reign of God is now. It has begun in the hearts and lives of his people, but it is also then it will be completed at the king's return. We begin kingdom living now as Christians, but we anticipate the kingdom come when we will live these ethics faultlessly. Still another study Bible says this, Christ is the new and greater Moses, the supreme prophet. Jesus' message holds together in himself as king of the kingdom. His kingdom or reign has already begun in his people, transforming their lives by changing their nature. Christ's standards of obedience are impossible apart from his grace, and his laws constantly press his people to seek more grace from God. Brothers and sisters, our king has begun his kingdom or reign and rule in our hearts and is transforming us by changing our nature. The ethics of the king are impossible for us to live flawlessly in this life. Impossible. Yet, because of his grace and spirit, we can begin to live out these ethics. That's good news. That's sanctification or kingdom living being increased in our lives right now. That's exciting. Dr. William Hendrickson, he's one of my favorite commentators, he nailed it when he explained, there are those who claim that when Jesus delivered this sermon, he neither directly nor indirectly had in view the church of today and that its precepts are unlivable today, irrelevant to the conditions prevailing in this modern age. See, Hendrickson believed that the Sermon on the Mount is for the church today and not only for a future messianic kingdom. He continued, the wisdom of Christ applies today as well as yesterday. 
now as well as then, the poor in spirit, etc., are and are pronounced blessed. It is not true that this discourse has meaning only for one age and not for another, or that it can be applied only to a certain class of people, the still unconverted, for example, but not to others. The principles here enunciated are applicable always and to all. The unconverted person should listen in order that he may recognize his total inability to keep these precepts and may flee to Christ for refuge. The believer should take to heart the lessons here taught in order that in the strength of the Lord and by His grace, He may begin to obey them out of gratitude. Out of gratitude. Hendrickson loved the Heidelberg Catechism. Dearest saints, the Sermon on the Mount is for us today. It reminds us of our need of God's grace and it shows us how to express our gratitude for receiving God's grace in Christ. Now hopefully these quotes get your wheels turning. Now, let me try to tie it all together here. Here are four points to tie it all together. Four simple points to apply as we go through the Sermon on the Mount. Things that we should continue to remember. Number one, The Sermon on the Mount exhibits the righteousness of the king. The virtues that Jesus presents are the virtues that Jesus practices perfectly. Jesus embodies these virtues. So we should hear this sermon and be awestruck at the righteousness of our King Jesus. Number two, the Sermon on the Mount expounds the ethics of the kingdom. Those who belong to the king begin to live out these ethics in their lives. Uh, Their their spirit-empowered yet imperfect effort foreshadows the kingdom come. Three, the Sermon on the Mount exposes our sin, guilt, and desperate need of God's grace in Christ. The ethics of the sermon, folks, when you read them and take them seriously, they are so lofty They reveal the sinfulness of humanity by showing righteousness is beyond the grasp of sinners. The the Sermon on the Mount reminds unbelievers and believers that they don't measure up to God's law. They can't. Yet for believers, the sermon doesn't condemn, but rather convicts, revealing their continued need of grace upon grace upon grace. The the great 20th century Welsh uh, preacher, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, commented, No man can live the Sermon on the Mount in and of himself and unaided. There is nothing that so leads to the gospel and its grace as the Sermon on the Mount. End of quote. Jesus intends the Sermon to push us, to push us to him to receive his grace, to receive his strength. Uh, J. Gresham Machen, the great Princeton theologian, who valiantly disputed liberalism in the 20th century uh, and and started Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, which you might be familiar with, said this about the Sermon on the Mount. The new law of the Sermon on the Mount in itself can only produce despair. Strange indeed is the complacency with which modern men can say that the golden rule and the high ethical principles of Jesus are all they need. In reality, if the requirements for entrance into the kingdom of God are what Jesus declares them to be, we are all undone. 
We have not even attained to the external righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. And how shall we attain to that righteousness of heart which Jesus demands? The Sermon on the Mount, rightly interpreted then, makes man a seeker after some divine means of salvation by which entrance into the kingdom can be obtained. Even Moses was too high for us, but before this higher law of Jesus, who shall stand without being condemned? The Sermon on the Mount, like all the rest of the New Testament, really leads a man straight to the foot of the cross. Jesus preached this sermon to lead his disciples to the foot of the cross, to receive more and more grace, to see their sin, guilt, and misery, and to receive more grace, but also to be transformed by grace into men and women who live like the king by the king's spirit at work in them. Number four, the Sermon on the Mount explains how believers should seek to obey their heavenly Father by the Spirit's power in gratitude for His grace. The Sermon on the Mount tells God's adopted children, tells you and me, dear believers, how to love the Father, how to love our Father. Brilliant American poet, theologian, and minister Amos Wilder once said about the Sermon on the Mount, quote, no, not so much ethics of obedience as ethics of grace. End of quote. Now, of course, the sermon demands obedience, but not an obedience devoid of empowering grace. The king demands what only the king's grace can produce. Now, how else would we know how to love God if he did not explicitly tell us in his law? How would you know? His law is a gift. Lest we grow disheartened and discouraged at the impossibility of the sermon's ethical demands, we look and just say, I can't do that unless we become disheartened about that. Let us remember that God grants his Holy Spirit to those who ask. And by his power coursing through their hearts and lives, they are able to begin to obey the king's commands with increasing regularity and growth. Striving to live the sermon is not hopeless. It is not unachievable because of the indwelling presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Perfection is unachievable in this life, but certainly not growth. Our Father, who loves us, provides us with the means to obey Him, His grace and His Spirit. Remember what the Apostle John said. This is New Testament, folks. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. Do you feel that way? That they're good? That you love his law? As the psalmist says, the Sermon on the Mount is loaded with law. You can't read it and not get law. And that brings blessing and that brings true happiness to God's people. And only God's people can obey by God's grace and spirit. A wonderful gift. So, so as we move through the Sermon on the Mount in the coming months, Hear the sermon with these four things in mind. The Sermon on the Mount exhibits the righteousness of the king, expounds the ethics of the kingdom, exposes our sin, guilt, and desperate need of God's grace in Christ, and explains how believers should seek to obey their heavenly Father by the Spirit's power in gratitude for his grace. So with those four things in mind, we are less likely to mishear and misapply the sermon. So let's jump in. 
Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount to his disciples. Um, on, on New Year's Eve in 1994, Rod Stewart performed on Copacabana Beach in Rio de Janeiro, and 3.5 million people showed up to hear him. Did you get that? 3.5 million people. Have I told you lately that I love you? Is that how he sounds? I don't know, but he wasn't even healing people. He was just singing, and 3.5 million people came. Crowds come from far and wide to see excellent things. They expect great things. Immense crowds followed Jesus. He taught with unparalleled authority, and he healed people of diseases. He was stunning in every way. The last verse of chapter 4 says, and great crowds followed him. Of course they would. Why wouldn't they follow him? But not necessarily for the right reason. As the book of John reveals very clearly, many came to Jesus for miracles and not for salvation in Christ. Well, Jesus saw the great hordes of people, and what did he do? He goes up the mountain presumably to get away from the crowds. I don't know. Nowadays, preachers stand to preach. Would you mind if next Sunday, if I just took up a chair and sat to preach and teach? I don't know if that would make you uncomfortable or not, but back in those days, the rabbis would sit to teach. It was different. Now, who did he teach? Matthew says his disciples. His disciples came to him and he taught them. This sermon was not intended for the undecided and unbelieving crowds. Jesus focused on those who were committed to him, believers, which tells us, it's a big point, in how to hear what he's saying. The crowds might have overheard, but his words are for the church. What did Matthew mean by disciples? Were the 12 sitting there or everyone at that time who was committed to him? Well, Matthew doesn't give that uh, uh, detail. He doesn't say, but I imagine it was all the people that were committed to following him. Came and gathered around. Leon Morris observed this. We should bear in mind that the teaching that follows is addressed to disciples rather than the general public. For example, throughout the whole sermon, there is no call to repent. Isn't that interesting? No call to repent. The first note in Jesus' preaching to the people. This does not mean that no one other than the disciples heard Jesus' teaching, only that it was addressed primarily to people committed to him. That's helpful in how to hear it. That's very important. Jesus preached this sermon to people committed to him. So we can't pluck the sermon from its context and detach it from God's law and gospel and repentance and faith. That, that would be a big mistake. He drew his disciples to himself by his grace, and they came to him to receive his grace. The context and audience of the sermon is of great importance. Next, the Sermon on the Mount is the king explaining for his disciples how they are to live his kingdom ethics. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. So what follows then is the doctrine of the king, the instruction, the teaching, the doctrine of the king. What follows is what the king wants his citizens to understand about their new life in his kingdom. He embarks on a doctrinal journey explaining how to live by grace as committed followers of Jesus but he doesn't begin with imperatives, does he? He doesn't begin with, with commands. 
He begins with describing the type of person to who the kingdom belongs. The, the, the Beatitudes are not various types of people, but one type of person, um, the type of person to whom the kingdom belongs. And, and as we work through these famed Beatitudes in the coming weeks, you'll notice that they're all about grace. They're all about grace. Understand the context of grace, or you will likely mistake the Sermon on the Mount for moralism or legalism or some other devastating conclusion. The context of the Sermon is sovereign grace. You can't live the Sermon without God's grace. You have no ability, no power, no desire, no nothing. But grace, grace leads you to want to live out these these ethics of this sermon and and to actually have the ability to live it out by the Spirit, as imperfect as your effort will be in this life. Now, one time years ago, I talked with Dr. Dan Doriani. It was at a pastor's lunch at Geneva College. He's a real dynamic and, and magnetic personality. And in his commentary on Matthew, which I'm finding helpful, Dr. Doriani said, said something helpful about the Beatitudes. He said this, Grace alone holds the Beatitudes together. The first three Beatitudes describe a disciple's knowledge of his spiritual need. The fourth states God's promise to meet that need. The fifth through seventh describe the results of the fourth Beatitude. Grace, grace, grace. We must hear the gospel of grace first in order to hear the Sermon on the Mount rightly. What are the Beatitudes? Beatitude is not a word that I use in everyday conversation. Do you? I don't hear people using the word beatitude in everyday conversation. It's kind of like the word henceforth or crapulous or obsequious or parsimonious. Who uses those words? I don't use them. What's a beatitude? Well, it's simply this. Supreme blessedness. Supreme blessedness, or you could say utmost happiness. The Beatitudes are Jesus explaining how to be truly happy. How to be truly happy. Not the world's definition of happiness, but God's definition of happiness. True and utmost happiness in God. That's what he's getting after. And if you want to know how to be truly happy, you need to listen to Jesus, not the world. Why? Because Jesus is God and because Jesus is supremely happy. Why not listen to the happiest person ever when seeking to be happy yourself? Here's where Jesus begins. True happiness begins with acknowledging our spiritual poverty. That's where it begins. Blessed or supremely happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know what, folks? Nobody but Jesus talks that way. The world does not talk that way. They don't start there. They don't want to get there. But that's where Jesus starts, spiritual poverty. The Greek word makarios means blessed or happy in circumstances and or disposition. Some Christians they criticize the word happy as if it's an ungodly or a worldly idea. Uh, some set happiness against joy, 
Well, the Bible doesn't. I don't see that in Scripture. Happy or happiness is a very biblical and a very God-honoring idea. The ESV interprets Deuteronomy 33, verse 29 as, Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord. And that Hebrew word for happy is used many times in the Old Testament. There are actually beatitudes in the Old Testament. Did you know that? Beatitudes are loaded in the Psalms. Blessed or truly happy is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, Psalm 32, verse 2. Blessed or truly happy is the man who makes the Lord his trust, Psalm 40, verse 4. Blessed or truly happy is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law, Psalm 94, verse 12. Blessed or truly happy is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, Psalm 146, verse 5. Happy is not a yuppie word. It's a biblical word. Of course the world takes happiness and redefines it according to its idolatry and temporal pleasures and messes up the concept of happiness. The world always messes things up. But see, with Scripture, we have clarity on happiness, true happiness and true joy, not as the world defines it, as God defines it. And the world, they pursue happiness in the wrong ways, foolish ways, but Happiness is from God, and it transcends unfavorable earthly circumstances. A person can be suffering horribly and be happy, according to God's understanding of happiness. Jesus is saying that to be truly happy, one must begin by acknowledging their spiritual poverty and their desperate need of grace. Jesus says in Luke 6.20, blessed are you who are poor. And and if that's all that we had, we might begin to think that Jesus is talking about materially poor people. But that would be odd for several reasons. Material poverty is not inherently virtuous. We try to help people out of material poverty. All right? And also being materially poor does not get you into the kingdom of heaven. So financial status has no bearing on the kingdom of heaven. So it just wouldn't work if he was talking about materially poor, though those who he was addressing were materially poor. In verse 3, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in what? Spirit. That takes us further to understand what he's saying. Not poor in wallet, but poor in spirit. He tells us what kind of poverty that he's talking about. And the word Jesus used, I find this very interesting, for poor is not poor in the sense that you work and work and work really, really hard, but you can't ever get ahead. You're always just at the lower economical status or scale. He's not talking about that. It's, the word is poor in the sense of beggarly. Beggarly, destitution, being supported by others giving directly to you. That's the kind of poverty, the poor, that he's talking about. Jesus is saying that those who are truly happy, truly blessed, those to whom the kingdom belongs are spiritually bankrupt people, broke, insolvent, penniless, ruined, cleaned out, and they receive the kingdom by grace. 
When it comes to spiritual things, righteousness, goodness, holiness, purity, the spiritually poor don't have it. They don't have any of it. And they are in a position of complete and utter need. All they have is what they're given. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says nothing about ethnicity, nothing about nationality in the Beatitudes because the kingdom and happiness are received by grace through faith to the spiritually poor. True happiness in the kingdom of God do not belong to those who think that they are spiritually rich and that they are entitled to the kingdom. The kingdom is mine because obviously I deserve it. No. No. If a person thinks that they can attain the kingdom by their own efforts or goodness or privilege or money, they don't have the kingdom. I heard a a professing Christian one time, he said that he never asked God for anything. As if the life of the Christian is not filled with begging God for mercy and grace and thanking him for receiving such. What an odd thing for a Christian to say. Notice that Jesus used the present tense. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Present tense. If you are spiritually impoverished, spiritually beggarly, and you receive God's grace in Christ through faith, the kingdom is yours now. It is a present reality. One source commented, the present tense implies that these people already partake of God's reign in this present life by the Spirit through the full experience of God's glory is though, sorry, though the full experience of God's glory is yet to be experienced in the future. The the kingdom belongs to those who look at God's holiness. They look at his righteousness and they realize, oh no. I am bankrupt of righteousness, bankrupt of holiness, bankrupt of everything that is good. I have none of it. I need God's mercy. I need God's grace. And so they receive it all in Christ by faith. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, I would say that there is no more perfect statement of the doctrine of justification by faith only than this beatitude. James Boyce, the late and former uh, pastor of Philly's historic 10th Presbyterian, you might have heard him on the radio. I think think the WDAC might still play him. He added this, seen in this way, the first of the eight Beatitudes is one of the strongest statements in the Bible of the great doctrine of justification by faith in Jesus Christ alone. For it is a statement of a person's complete inability to please God by any human effort. Do you understand? Poor in spirit, bankrupt, broke. We bring nothing to God. God brings the kingdom to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So let me ask you, do you want to be happy? I mean really happy. I think all of us would just say yes, yes, all right? So surrounding yourself with the right people, that can help, but it doesn't go far enough. 
getting enough sleep. Oh, I'm reading a sleep book right now. It's actually a pretty good book. It has me laughing. How to get good sleep. Okay, that's good, but it doesn't take you far enough. Appreciating what you have, exercising or concentrating on the things that you can't control, all that helps, but it doesn't go far enough. It does not go far enough. To be truly happy, you must begin with your spiritual bankruptcy, which takes you to the foot of the cross to receive mercy and grace from Christ. And one who receives God's grace in Christ is truly happy. Happy. There is no true happiness without receiving God's sovereign grace with gratitude and being really glad that you have it. You believe that you have it. You receive it in Christ. That's a happy person. How kind of God to give us his law to reveal to us our spiritual poverty. How would you have known you're spiritually impoverished without his law? His law is precious. It does something. It can't save you, but it does something huge for you. That you need his law. Read the Psalms about how they loved God's law and how kind of God to give us the gospel in which, upon believing it, we receive the riches of his mercy and grace in Christ. Riches, my friends, mercy and grace. From poor in spirit to rich toward God, rich in faith, rich in good works, all by grace alone in what the Spirit produces in us. So if you're coming in here this morning poor in spirit, you, you, you feel your spiritual poverty and need, okay? Be encouraged. Be encouraged. Because brothers and sisters, you, the spiritually impoverished ones who need to receive from Christ are truly blessed. You're truly happy. And the kingdom is yours.